the translation I'm going to be speaking from is the ESV, uh, slightly different, and that's what will appear up here. Um, so there might be a slight difference. If there are some terms of difference, I might refer to the different ones uh, for purpose of just explaining it well. We'd all have to know Greek in order to read the perfect translation. So uh, any English translation is an approximation, and uh, we'll look at two different ones today. So we're in Colossians, and we're in chapter 2. And we'll start together in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, all us, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. We arrive here, and as we've been there before, um, a really a key passage in Colossians. Paul has really started to become more direct to this church. He's basically very encouraged as he's heard about the Colossian church. He's got a report and is encouraged by what, what is happening amongst them, their faith, their love. And so he's now writing to give some specific instructions and the first instruction that we've looked at before is, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As we've seen before, they received him by faith, and so there's encouragement to continue to walk in faith. And he goes on to elaborate and saying, you know, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Keep going. You're doing well. Keep going in what you've learned. Keep going in all that Christ has done for you. He's a God who's done impossible things. Now, continue in that faith in a God who does impossible things. So there's an encouragement for them. The second direct instruction is the one we're going to look at today and is essentially more of a warning. So keep making progress, he's saying, but there's a threat to that progress. There's something you need to be mindful of, there's something that you need to be aware of, and that he starts to spell that out in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. There is a threat here that is essentially one of deceit, of deception, of ideas and teachings that the Colossian church were exposed to. And the idea is that these, these teachings were kind of seductive. They were wanting to kind of take hold of these Colossians and these, these believers and kind of drag them away, take them off, carry them off and take them captive. So even whilst they'd come to faith in Jesus, there was these threats, these teachings that were kind of putting forward a different message and saying, no, you know, you might have received Christ Jesus as Lord, that's all well and good, 
but now you need to get into some other things. You need to get into some other knowledge. And so there's some ideas that they were being told that Jesus really was just one of many rulers, one of many kind of ways to God so that we can get some benefit through Jesus, but that he's not the only way and that you need to start looking in other ways. It's also, it's almost like this. If you imagine the point at which we're saved, starting from point A and looking down a street. And at the end of that street, we see Jesus. And that first instruction is, continue walking in him. Keep going in him. He's our, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that we're wanting to follow. He's the one we're wanting to persist in. And there are things that can come from us from either side. Other voices that want to kind of take us captive, want us to just draw us off. We've, we've started going in Christ, but now other voices are coming in saying, no, you need, to, you need to try out some other things. So where do these ideas come from? They come from philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. They're human ideas. They're not ideas from God. People were coming to them saying, oh, but it's, this has always been the case. You always need to pay attention to these different things, these different rulers. And so they were getting distracted, not knowing now which way to turn. This human tradition, these deceptive philosophies would be saying, um, people's attempts down the years to explain our our existence, we really need to uh, seek fulfillment in other things. You aren't, they were saying, you aren't going to receive fulfillment or be complete in Christ. There's other things you need to get into. And those were the deceptive lies that were coming their way. Now, Paul mentions where else they're coming from, with a kind of peculiar phrase, in the ESV at least, the elemental spirits of the world. In the NIV, you'll see that translated as the the basic principles of this world. Now, to our ears, those basic principles might kind of sound like the, the systems that operate in the world, whether that's kind of financial systems and the markets, whether that's kind of social structures, whether that's to do with uh, different ways of education, whether that's to do with different ways of government. And we can see all those systems as okay, but maybe weak in some way, and so maybe likely to to fail. Sometimes there's people are in the wrong positions, uh, people in positions of authority, and things start to go wrong because their decisions are made which are incorrect and have a negative impact on the whole world. We can think maybe greed gets in. Maybe that's the basic principle of the world. Greed gets into things and starts to distort decisions that people make. And obviously at the moment there seems to be growing chaos in the financial markets. We can think, oh, that's the, that's the basic principle by which the world has, has, has operated. And we can think, well, therefore, that's the way that deception can come to us. We can think, oh, it's all to do with money. It's all to do with pursuing, uh, pursuing wealth. That might be there, but in a sense, Paul is saying in this phrase, elemental spirits or basic principles, it goes a stage deeper than that. It's not just focusing on things in the world that are wrong, human systems or human tradition. It goes one step deeper. Paul has already spoken in Colossians 1.16 of the thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities. And he says there that they were all created by God and for him, The Colossians, however, thought that perhaps they were subject to other supernatural forces. So I think Paul is getting here at something supernatural. 
the Colossians thought, oh, for us to prosper, for us to be complete, there are these other supernatural forces that will hold sway in our lives. So even though they come to faith in Christ, they lived in fear of these other evil spirits. They lived in fear of supernatural forces, supernatural personalities. They weren't just kind of systems of the world, but evil spirits that are influencing other things, kind of almost pulling the strings of the world, making things um, confusing and deceptive, trying to drag people off. Paul doesn't dismiss the reality of evil spirits. Uh, He acknowledges their activity, but he wants to expose them. And he goes in in Ephesians to, to explain this in a different way when he's speaking to that church in Ephesians and chapter 6. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying, wake up to where these things are coming from. Don't just think that things are down to kind of human tradition. There are these forces that are trying to influence you and trying to deceive you. They're kind of on the route. You're heading towards Christ. You're heading to that day when you'll be with him forever. That's the route that he's called you on. And your other voices are coming from from either side, getting to try and entice you off into other thoughts, uh, bringing in doubts and so on. Paul is saying, recognize where this is coming from. It's ultimately coming from um, forces of evil in the heavenly places, from the devil and all his deceiving uh, assistance. That's how it's been from the beginning. The enemy seeks to deceive God's people, seeks to deceive us by telling lies. We see that first of all uh, in Genesis chapter 3. Right there in the beginning, God had made... Uh, the world, he'd made the universe, and he'd made man in his image, placed him in the garden to take care of it. It says in Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It just shows what the, the enemy, the serpent there, which is the devil, is like. He almost presents himself as a friend. He almost says, Oh, no, really, God knows that when you eat of that tree, when you eat of the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be opened. It's really in your interests to take hold of it. And in a crafty, cunning, and deceptive way, he says, right at the beginning, did God, did God really say? He's just one wanting to sow in doubts, wanting to slightly deceive and drag us off into other things. He's cunning and subtle and sows doubts. Jesus acknowledges his activity as well in the, in the spiritual realm, describes him as the father of lies. He just wants to so lies, but it's sometimes subtle. There are sometimes things that will be very obvious, but sometimes subtle. So Paul is here writing to the Colossians, you know, you've heard the gospel and you were saved. Now you're hearing these other ideas 
these other ideas that seem to reduce Jesus to, to an also-ran, that reduce him to maybe a wise teacher, a special man who was perhaps touched by God for a time, but they're reducing him, not, not the Son of God, not the one who can forgive your sins or transform your life. You know, he's okay, but you're not going to find completion in Christ. You're not going to find ultimate fulfillment in him. That was the lie that was coming. That's not obviously not what that I'm saying now. That's the lie that's coming, a subtle one, starting to erode their faith. Paul wants to expose these errors. He wants to expose these lies. These kind of lies were sowing in such a way that they were obviously meeting together. They were a church, believing Christ, but also kind of fearing, supernat- fearing these supernatural forces. It was almost like Jesus was like one trump card in a pack of trump cards. But there were loads of other trump cards, loads of other... Uh, spiritual authorities that had power and so maybe something would come along and they, and they would think, oh, but maybe Jesus isn't quite sufficient for that situation, isn't quite sufficient for, for that need, isn't quite sufficient for me to know that I'm saved now and forever. Almost Jesus is like on a level with these other rulers and so they would live in fear of these other supernatural forces. Paul wants them not to live in fear. Now it's interesting for us, we can neither be uh, preoccupied with uh, evil forces, either preoccupied with a spiritual realm. Sometimes you'll hear people where um, want to kind of super spiritualise every natural event that takes place. So if there's a if there's a big thunderstorm, it signifies oh there was a battle in the heavenly places. There was some kind of battle between forces of evil and forces of good, and there'll be a very super spiritual way about it. So there can be a kind of preoccupation with the devil and his ac- activities. There can also be a kind of a, a scepticism. No, that's, um, that's not true. We've, we've, we've learned from science now how things operate in the world. We know now that um, science can explain a lot of the things that take place in the world. And that's replaced our need to believe in spiritual forces. That's replaced our need to believe that there are spiritual forces of good and there are spiritual forces of darkness. If we get preoccupied with them, we can think, oh, they're kind of on a level playing field with God. Maybe God wins in some cases, but maybe uh, the devil wins in others. And that's an error that, uh, that Paul wants, to, uh, wants the Colossians to avoid, wants us to avoid, but also to avoid the opposite error of just thinking, there's, 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 no, there's no risk here, there's no, there's no threat. Life is a, a straightforward process, and, um, and we can kind of just take on ideas as they come, but before we know it, actually, we might just be being led off astray because there's something, something so, so subtle, so deceiving. Paul wants them to know, look, you've heard these things, but they're not according to Christ. Now, rather than going into depth about what these lies, what these philosophies are, rather than answering them in like a point-by-point point way, he's saying, no, these are empty they're suggesting that they're full, but they're empty. Now he directs their, their vision to Christ and says, no, Christ is full. Christ is what you find completion in. There's nothing lacking in him. So he goes on to say in verse 9, Christ is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's not a little bit here and some over there and some in these different forces. It's in Christ and you've been filled in him. There's nothing extra, in other words, that needs to be done. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 in the NIV says, We have everything we need in Christ. His 
divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need is found in Christ. It's not we start with Christ and we have to find other extras to satisfy or to, to help us continue in salvation. No, he's the one who provides us with everything we need. Paul wants to point their attention to Christ and what he has achieved for us. Not by our own efforts, but things that have categorically happened, things that have already taken place that mean for us that we are filled in him. And he uses four pictures that we'll look at. Four pictures, as it were, to emphasize what Christ has already done in us and why we are already filled in him, why there is nothing that lacks in him. And basically, he is the ruler, the victor, the one who's won victory over all things. And first of all, there's the idea that in Christ, we can be changed on the inside. Nothing else can do that. But in Christ, we can be changed on the inside. Paul uses here the picture of circumcision. That's the first picture. Circumcision was a sign in the Old Testament of belonging to God. It was a sign of God's people that they belonged to him. Uh, God gave them that sign. And and so on the eighth day, every male child had their foreskin removed as a way of showing this person is in God's people. They belong to God's people. A problem came, however, that people started to, to think, therefore, that having the outward sign of belonging to God is what ultimately mattered to him, whereas God was actually primarily concerned, and always has been, with our heart, what's on the inside. So he warns his people in Isaiah chapter 29 along these lines. He said, you've been given these signs, you've been given these outward things, but actually I'm interested in your heart. He says in Isaiah 29 verse 13, if I find the right place. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honour me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. He says, This people draw near with their mouths, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God is interested in the heart. And when Jesus came, he pronounced kind of woes on the religious leaders then, um, because he said to them, in a sense, you're interested in what's on the outside of the cup. If you imagine yourself as like a cup, you're in- interested in its outer appearance. You're interested in keeping to these strict rules and laws. But what about the inside? And so in coming, Christ knew that it was coming in order to make it possible for us to be changed on the inside. When his coming was uh, prophesied by Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36 and verse 29, God says there, he was promising to his people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new heart, he says. A life, therefore, which is no longer dominated by sin and no longer dominated by self. That actually in Christ, what's already happened is a work whereby we are cleaned on the inside. A work that gets continued, but as we come to Christ, we're getting changed on the inside. So those desires that were once kind of set against him are now new, that we can actually be changed 
on the inside. Nominal religion can't do anything about this. It can only say, no, just pull your socks up again. Here are the rules. Stick to them. Come on. And you need to kind of keep up appearances, as it were. But in Christ, we have fullness because he comes into the inside of us to actually change us on the inside, to change our hearts. A second way of putting a similar thing is given in this. A picture of baptism. Having been buried with him, in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's this image here of baptism being united in him in his death and raised again to new life. This is not something that we do. This is something that Jesus has already done for us at the cross. It's not a case of us trying to turn over a leaf. It's God's activity. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's something that's already happened. Paul is encouraging the Colossians to continue in that, but it's something that's already happened, a new creation. And that was always God's purpose for us, to walk in newness of life. And so we've been united in the death that Christ died, and we've been raised to life again. And so that ultimately, even death itself is swallowed up in victory. That new life has already begun. And that's another way in which we have all the fullness of Christ in us. Paul gives a third picture to give you the truth that in Christ our guilt has been cancelled. Any other religious figure or any other other uh, philosophical system is powerless, again, to deal with sin. It's powerless to deal with what's on the inside. They can only offer tips or demands for self-improvement, like trying to pay back an endless debt by instalments. There's always more to do. That guilt is never removed. Paul gives an entirely different picture here from verse 13. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul here gives this third picture of sin as a record of, of debt or a written code, as in, in effect a term for a certificate of debt. Um, it was not uncommon in the ancient world for, a, for someone who owed something uh, to write a note kind of acknowledging that amount and to acknowledge uh, that he was obliged to pay it back. And we can think of that in terms of our own thinking, sin and think, therefore, you know, how long would that be? The law stood there with its legal demands, saying this is how to live. And therefore, alongside it, we just had our own record of debt, ones not, we, not matched up to, and therefore a guilt on the inside. You can imagine kind of pulling o- open almost a, a standard filing cabinet just to find that the, the drawer just keeps opening and keeps opening because this list is so long. Paul is saying that Christ took our record of debt and made it his own and nailed it to the cross. So as he was on the cross, normally what would happen is that a, a, a label would be put above saying why that person was being crucified. It's almost as if actually he was being crucified for everything that we'd done and so he took our record of debt and that was nailed on the cross when he was nailed on the cross. So our sin, the debt we owe, was absolutely eradicated once and for all. 
And Paul gives a fourth picture and says in, in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ not only defeated uh, that kind of inner nature that was prone and always um, kind of tending towards sin, its every disposition was to disobey God, not only has he defeated that, not only has he defeated kind of death and given us a new life, not only has he defeated our, our guilt and our sin, but he's defeated the very rulers and authorities that the Colossians were so scared of. These other supernatural spiritual forces of darkness, Christ has overcome. The picture in verse 15 then, this fourth picture, is like when a a Roman commander returned home uh, after a successful military campaign. And he would lead back through the streets of the hometown, uh, perhaps Rome or elsewhere, and he would lead his troops through the streets in a victory parade, uh, showing off all the plunder that he had captured, perhaps all the works of art and the treasures, but as well he'd be, be, be parading the defeated enemies, the defeated generals that he had fought and beaten, and would be putting them to open shame. Once they might have appeared like they were on an equal footing, but what Christ has done at the cross is put them to open shame, utterly defeat their power. This is what Christ has done. So he leads in a victory procession every enemy that conspires against us, um, our sinful nature, our record of debt, and all the spiritual rulers and authorities, every demon and the devil. So yeah, we don't want to get preoccupied with forces of darkness, but neither do we want to think that they're on the same footing as God. You know, what looked like ultimate weakness and humiliation on Christ's part, as he was there on the cross, receiving the punishment for our sin, while all the powers of hell were celebrating, thinking they were defeated him, was in fact entirely the other way around. In doing that, in in going to the cross, in refusing to defend himself, in refusing to respond to the taunts of people as they hurled insults at him and jeered at him and said, well, come down then. Christ obeyed even to the point of death, knowing that it is important for him, for our sake, to stay there. And in that act of obedience, in that act of weakness and humiliation, he was in fact achieving a powerful, unparalleled victory that wins a victory over all things. Christ is completely, completely victorious. So he's defeated not only our sinful nature, our record of debt, He's also defeated every evil power and authority that we need not fear, therefore. We need not fear darkness. We need not fear demons. We need need not fear the devil because Christ is victorious. On the cross, Christ pays the huge debt for our sin and defeats all our enemies in him. In that way, we are completely full and complete now. There's nothing else that needs to be added to this victory. Of course, one day... We will see it in its fullness. At the moment, uh, Christ's enemies haven't yet conceded defeat. But their defeat is ultimately already been achieved at the cross. And therefore, for us, there's no fear of evil, no fear now of guilt. Every accusation that the enemy can level at us is absolutely gone. So we're free in him, 
free to worship, free to enjoy his presence, free to know that already we've got divine power that gives us everything we need for life and godliness in this life. Let's pray.